perusing through it, it was pretty discouraging at times as well. Uh, the, the blog's author was uh, Mary Fairchild. She's a writer. And, but I want to re- read, just I don't have it on the screen, but I want to read one response in that blog. And, and I think it represented maybe many there. And the title of it in the response was, Where is Love? And this is how it goes. I grew up in a church. I was saved when I was about 13 years old, and I'm not perfect by any means, but when I became older, I began to realize that church, for me, seemed to be a social event. It was more about impressing other people and showing face in church rather than my relationship with God. When I made mistakes in life, I did not find my church family who who always taught me to love one another, not to judge others, and who were supposed to support me and people I was supposed to be able to confess my sins to, were the same people who did the exact opposite when I needed them the most. These people condemned me. They did not show love or support to me, and they used my sins against me. And when I stopped attending church, they changed their attitude completely towards me. I stopped feeling like part of the whole. I stopped feeling love and support. Not going to church has, in my opinion, helped my relationship with God. He comforts me and guides me when everyone else has let me down. Mary Beth. The woman, this woman, young woman, has lost all hope in the idea of a local church. And the fact remains that there are countless people who have walked away from gatherings like this and are moving into a group, and I've used this before, but it's a term, into the de-churched group of people. It's people willing who claim to follow Christ, but they're willing to live outside of of a spiritual church family. And the challenge is, when I, if you read that blog, you find for so many people, they find that church isn't a place of hope. And you read that they're, the loss of hope and the reasons are varied. But there's a connected issue, that a little path i got to go down this morning to connect it. And there's a phrase I want to put on the screen here this morning. And it's a statement as to how we are created. And if you look at that, here, we'll get it going here. We were made by God to be interpreters. Now, when you walked into this place, or any other place, for example, our brain just functions in a way that we begin to interpret our surroundings. And there's kind of an evaluation that goes on, and there's conclusions that we bring together. And really, the summary of those is our interpretation you can come into a place like this and you can look around and go, how are people dressed? You can look around and go, maybe something like this. I wonder how the music is going to be. Or maybe you're wondering, okay, am I? you're deciding even right now, going, should I listen to Ken or should I check out for a while and, and take a little bit of a nap? See, we all are interpreters. We're created that way. It's part of being made human. But there's a reality to it is that there's these tight conclusions and that lead to expectations. 
And so we're, think of Mary Beth. Even in her interpretation, she came to that conclusion that the church is a place of judgment. And it really isn't a place of love and hope. Was she accurate? Maybe, maybe not. But see, there's these expectations and we evaluate and we try to understand our world. And did the church even make interpretations maybe toward her? The answer is probably. But one of the things as we evaluate, as we interpret our world, we even look around at a church like this. And one of the things that we cannot almost not do is we compare ourselves and interpret this as to where we're doing, how we're doing spiritually and, and sometimes how other people are doing spiritually as well. Parents, I'll, I'll throw it out to you. Don't we as parents at times look at our children and go, how are they doing? We try to interpret what's going on in their soul. Now, sometimes I think we think we can read their hearts and we really can't. But, you, but the reality is, is that we interpret things and we come to conclusions and some of those conclusions really are quite accurate. There was an article that uh, we were, I tossed to the elders here at our elder meeting on Tuesday night. And, and one of them was a writer that wrote and he, he talked about the different kinds of people that come into a church gathering like this. And he created some categories, and these are interpretations. I think they're actually quite accurate. Let me just read you some of them from this short article. He says, Some in the congregation are authentically Christian, vitally engaged in the gracious pursuit of Christlikeness. So this would be kind of the spiritual condition of particular churches. Some in a congregation are believers who have been recently ensnared in specific sinful habits probably true. Some in a congregation are being progressively vulnerable to the enticements of worldliness. See, there might be people here that are kind of coming up to the edge spiritually and going, which way do I go? It's probably true in, in the churches. Some in congregations, he said, are new Christians in need of maturity. Very true. And, and he said this, some in congregations are defiant Christians. They've kind of turned their back on God and said, I don't really care about you, God. And they're still, they still can be attending a church. And then there's some in congregations who are decidedly not Christian. You know what? They don't really care. They're here. They attend. A spouse might be with them, and they attend for the sake of the, another person, even children at that point. And then there's some congregations, he went on to say, that are spiritually deluded to thinking that they are a believer and they're not. And there's, that's the possibility and probably the case. And the last one, some in the congregations are Christian as deluded as to where they're really at spiritually. They think they're really high on the totem pole and they're really not. And, and I look at those interpretations and the categories he created and I think he's probably pretty accurate. Now, when you look at that, I hope you weren't looking around and wondering, oh, I wonder where they are. Do they fit in that category? If you did, you're probably falling into number nine. It's a little diluted, okay? But you think of these categories and how people, where they're at spiritually. Some good places, not some not so good. 
And it leads, though, to a fundamental question. And, and look at the question. Where is hope found for people who are trapped in sin and brokenness? In fact, where is hope found for people who are deluded in their thinking? Or where is hope found for Mary Beth, who's given up on the church? Turn with me to John chapter 4. Because the character that we look at today, as we've been kind of looking at Bible characters in this series on hope, this woman does not have a name but only really a reputation. And this is the woman at the well. Now, now here's what I want you to do. And I realized in the first service, uh, the, 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 the scriptures that I have on the screen are different. And I'm going to have you listen to an, uh, one of the readers. Um, one of the things that I'd encourage you with, as you put together a Bible reading plan, I would encourage you to dig in the scriptures. And one of the ways to enhance that is to get an audio Bible and download it on your phone or whatever. It's so Phones are so handy for that. But when you read the scriptures, read it and listen at the same time. Now, I realize I have a different version, the reader, versus the one I have on the screen. But you get the flavor of it. This is Max McLean from BibleGateway.com. We had bought a, uh, one, of the, one of his uh, reading Bibles. So let's go ahead and you can just follow along or just listen even. And I think you'll catch the heart of this uh, John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water? Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. John 4. Now, now let me just give you just a brief context of, of this story, of this narrative of Jesus meeting this woman. You understand, at this point in the life of Jesus, he's gaining in popularity. And it's pressing against the leaders of that Jewish culture. And there's a hatred growing toward Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you went back to chapter 2, you would see that he went into the temple, into the courts in the temple, and he threw out the money changers, overdid the, the tables, and drove out some of the livestock. And so they were beginning to really hate him at this point. So he decides to leave Judea, and he decides to go back to Galilee. But to go to Galilee, Jesus had to cross a territory called Samaria. But oftentimes, Jews, rather than going straight through, would walk around and try to avoid that territory. See, the Samaritans... If you don't know where they came from or who they are, about 400 years before Christ, the prophets had prophesied and that it, for Israel to turn, and they didn't. They didn't repent. And what God did, he allowed the Syrians, this would be 2 Kings 17, to Assyrians to come in and basically kind of wipe out the land and a bunch of the Israelites were, were tossed out of the country and other heathens, if you want to use that word, were brought in at that point. And then what took place is that the, these non-Jewish people begin to marry with the Jews. But for a Jewish person, that was very, that was very much of a vile thing. And they referred to them as half-breeds in one sense. And so you catch the distastefulness between, so they weren't respected. But another couple pieces to this story is when uh, Judah had been taken to Babylon and then returned after the 70 years, and then they come back to build the temple and build the wall, and guess what happens? The Samaritans come and say, hey, we'll help you. And the Jews say, no thanks. So in one th sense, there was a slap in the face there. And eventually, the Samaritans end up building their own temple. But about 200 years before Christ, one of the leaders ended up wiping out that temple and destroying it. And what's left is these two groups of people that are at odds with each other and really detest each other. But one more piece here. The Samaritans profess to believe in the same God. 
And if you heard that or saw that, you realize they were also waiting for a Messiah. But one of the pieces, again, that's connected to that is they only followed the first five books of the Old Testament. And the rest of the Old Testament, they dismissed. So you can see why that there's tension between these two groups of people. So that's the context of this encounter. But here's how we want to do it. I'm not going to walk through this passage verse by verse. What I want to do is for today, just bring out some of the aspects that really add to the issue of hope. That's where I want to approach it today. And if you have your sermon notes, you can follow along. And I, I realize that I actually left this one filled in for you, so you don't even have to write this one. But the first one there, reasons why we find hope from this Samaritan woman. And the first application there, one doesn't have to be spiritually clean to engage Jesus. See, this was true of that encounter. See, the history is that Jesus comes to Jacob's well, and and obviously there was some depth to that well. He needed a rope to pull up the water. He didn't have anything to get the water, and he asked this woman, woman, would you give me a drink? But this engagement, just the encounter, the words spoken to this woman was very, very unique. And Jesus was actually showing how he wasn't confined by the culture of the day. Because the culture of the day, in terms of being a Jew, is that he shouldn't have been talking to her. Because there was, frankly, there was three strikes that she had against her. First one is this. She was a Samaritan woman. A Samaritan. And you're not supposed to interact with those people. And Jesus is initiating, engaging with her. And a good Jew, you wouldn't have done that. Now, there's one other piece that shows how he never allowed culture to dictate what he what believe, he believed to be right and was right. In verse 8, I don't know if you know this, but when you see that phrase where the disciples then went in to buy, into the city to buy food, they were going into a Samaritan village. But normally, the Jews did not eat any food that was processed or handled even by the Samaritans. It was to that degree. Matter of fact, I came across a quote from a commentary, and, and there's where they're quoting a rabbi what he taught. Let no Israelite eat one mouthful of anything that is a Samaritan's. For if he eats but a little mouthful, he is as if he ate swine's flesh. Remember, the Jews were not supposed to eat any kind of pork. So just a Samaritan eating from their food stock would have been bad. But she had a second strike as well here. The Samaritan was a woman. And the Jewish attitude toward women was really less than ideal. I think when you look back and think of Proverbs 31 woman, where there was this dignity with women. But somehow the idea of women and how they were to be treated came in from the culture around them, and they adopted some of the pagan views on this. And it was normal, this was normal for a man not to 
talk with a woman on the street. They go by, whether it was their mother, their sister, daughter, wife, you weren't supposed to engage a woman. And Jesus was talking to a woman. But there was a third strike here as well. This woman's presence at the well during the middle of the day, which normally they would probably go get water in the morning, and the women would go down with their jugs, and they'd fill it together. She was alone here during the middle of the day, which points to this. She had a tarnished reputation. Maybe to put it differently, she was relationally challenged, both, I think, with men and, I think, with women. See, her life was broken, and you heard that, five divorces. It would have ruined her reputation. So according to the Jews, this interaction, in one sense, there's three strikes against Jesus. But you understand the heart of the Pharisees and how they dealt with people, how they interpreted people. I want to put Luke 7 on the screen here, an encounter And let me just read this. I'll give you the context. Now, when the Pharisee would invite him saw this, what was this? This was the woman that was washing Jesus' feet. But look at their response as they saw that woman wash his feet. If this man were a prophet, he would have have known who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. That she's a sinner. Jesus, why are you even touching a sinner? If you're a prophet, a holy man, you've got to stay away from those people. You catch the attitude of the Pharisees. But, but really, the, the system of the Pharisees, that was at the heart of what it meant to be holy, is that you avoid even people who might be sinners. You keep their distance from them. You don't associate with those people. You know, and the hard part as I was processing this, I have to go back and think of years in the past where I've known of parents who've actually communicated this to their children. You, you can't play with them because they're, quote, sinners. So what are, you know, that's the challenge for us parents. But is sin just some kind of contagious disease? That's what the Pharisees believed. But hope says this, we don't have to clean up our act to come to Jesus. And this picture, folks, is God's grace in action. And he engages a sinner, no matter where they're at, and this is what he does. And a truth, just to add to your notes here, just a reminder, God's love is not based on who we are. It doesn't matter. Our nationality, our color, even in the areas of sin, God still wants to engage people. The the, the challenge is, I, I think sometimes though, it's easy to adopt very subtly the attitude of the Pharisees. Because don't we at times want to avoid places and people that have Sinners there? Yeah, I, I had to, I was thinking of this. Jesus taking a trip through the United States. Do we really think he would avoid San Francisco just because there's gay people there? 
a big population of it? And you go, no. He would be going straight through it, and he'd be going to those enclaves of it. Why? Because they need a Savior. See, that's the challenge for us. It's not pulling back from people. It's engaging with people with the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's another issue as well here. Number two, Jesus is inviting the broken and the rejection rejected into a relationship with himself. Now, now the background here speaks to this, of this day and age, or in this story. In those days, understand this, it was the husbands who divorced their wives. It was not the wives who divorced their husbands. And there's a term in the Old Testament or a number of times that the men would put away their wives. It was divorcing their wives. And it's a one-sided thing here. So, so get the picture. Here's a woman who's been divorced five times. Five different times she's been put away by a man. And you can understand why she didn't want to marry the next guy that came along. But how do you think she felt? So she's living with a man, not married, and Jesus is inviting her with a, this reputation. He knows it. He knows, and she's surprised that he knows it. But he's inviting her into discussion and relating with himself. Now, I, I think when you look at it and look at the rest of the story, we're not going to read it, but even when the disciples came back, you just kind of wonder what was going through their mind. Had they adopted some of those things of the culture? And I, I suspect it would have been like this. Jesus, why are you wasting your time on this person? Move on to something else. But let me put this important truth for your notes out there. That speaks to this. God's love is not based on what we've done. He doesn't reject us. There's not this sin in our lives. He doesn't reject us. He wants us to run from sin. It's not based. And this, for this woman, it wasn't based on what she had done because he engaged her. But let me give you a third point here this morning. Another reason for hope. I said it like this, Jesus and the triune God is actively engaging people even with flawed doctrines. Do you realize that? Maybe to go farther, is there power, is the gospel powerful enough to break through if somebody's in a cult? Is the gospel powerful enough and the Holy Spirit powerful enough to, to break through people who are trapped in false religions? And I go, yes. Because it did in this woman. It penetrates the hearts of even people with bad doctrine. But let me kind of give you a theological piece or another doctrinal piece application here. I said it this way. God's love is not based on what we know. When the gospel works, when the Holy Spirit works, it penetrates the hearts of people. Let me show you the context of this in this passage. Verse 19, the woman meets Jesus. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. 
Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now maybe to say it this way, the woman's doctrine in theology was a bit off. But do you notice the goal of Jesus here? It wasn't to convince her that the doctrine, her doctrine, was wrong. He didn't get into a debate and go something like this. You know, you only accept the first five books. Do you realize that the rest of the books, and I'm going to convince you that the whole Old Testament is the Scriptures? He didn't go there. There was no apologetics here that... I'm not saying that apologetics are bad. Please don't interpret that. But what does Jesus do? It's like a surgeon and a scalpel. He cuts to the real issue. Look at verse 25 and 26. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Here's what I think that means. Is that she's saying to him, Jesus... When he comes, he's going to tell us whether you're right or I'm right. Whether Samaritans are right or the Israelites are right, Jews are right. But look how he takes the scalpel and he goes after her. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And the next instant, what happens? doesn't really say this directly. She believes. She believes him. She drops, I think, her jars and her probably her jaw on top of it. And all of a sudden, her heart is open, and she runs back to the village, and she says, Hey, the Messiah, the one that was promised, I talked to. He knew all about me. Come with me. Go see this Messiah who's come. Do you catch what happened to this woman's life? It was changed by Jesus. But here's where i got to introduce a verse, and we're going to bring this back on Christmas Eve service. 1 Peter 1. Look at how it reads. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into, look at this, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can be never perish or spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. What this saying is that we today have a living hope And that living hope was standing right in front of that woman. And it changed her. When you think of Christmas, that baby represents a living hope. And we can celebrate that the hope is has been born. Well, let me push you to one more point. Let me read verses 31 and on, a few verses there. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Would have confused him, obviously. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food while we're, you know, they were, while we're gone? Did, did someone give him something to eat? Look at the response. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you. Disciples, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Here's this fourth point. We have hope because of God's initiative. God doing this toward us. Jesus was on the mission of God. And here's the truth for you. God who is love is still spreading his abundant love and hope in this world today. He's still, the Spirit is working and the gospel is still working. I got a letter from a, uh, or an email from a friend who's a, a missionary and he was in a place where a couple of the gals coming out of Iran had been jailed and they were giving their testimonies of what God is doing in Iran and opening up hearts of people. And even when they're in prison, that there was people that were, hearts were being opened up. See, because God is a lover. He wants to express his love and give a gift in this world and that gift started with a child, with the gift of his son. See, Jesus is the Messiah. This woman knew it. He's who he is. But, but, but i got to ask you today, do you know this Messiah? Have you ever embraced this man, Jesus? Or is it your interpretation that he's just some nice guy with some good ideas? So if you're 15 or 50 or 80, do you know him? And I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about how to learn to act a certain way. I'm not talking about learning the right things. I want to know, do you know this guy named Jesus, the Messiah? See, see the challenge, if we've been born again, and you go back to the, where people are at today, is Jesus the answer where people are at spiritually today if you've been enticed with sin? Is the answer Jesus or are you trying to, you feel guilty about the sin and you're running from the sin, but you're not running to Jesus? And I see that happen all the time. People want to get rid of the weight and the baggage, but they don't want to run to him and to know him. But if you're trapped like Mary Beth, what's the answer for her? And I say this, she needs to get to know Jesus. Because you'll see that the church is flawed. There's, there's all kinds of different people in a church. There's not going to be perfection there, but hopefully the church is a place where we're learning to know Jesus and love Jesus better. If you're doing well spiritually, my question to you is, is it moving you to worship the triune God in Jesus? Is it pushing you? Is this season pulling you to a place where you're going, oh, 
This is the gift and this is the grace of God poured into my life. You know what, if you're one of those that's trapped in sin, uh, my encouragement to you is pick up this book, but don't read it for information. Read it in such a way that you get to know him. Start, what does this tell me about having to get to know him? Think of this woman at the well, though. Do you realize that the moment she believed that this miracle, that her sins were taken away, she was washed clean, the, the five divorces and all the junk that all of a sudden there was something new for her. And her response was to go run into the village and tell everybody that the Messiah is here. She was a changed woman. And you know what the irony of it, as you look at this story and you just step back a moment, so here's a group of people who didn't accept most of the Old Testament. And Jesus engages them, a sinful woman, broken woman, and they respond to him. And then you have this other group of people, even going back to John 2 and even John 3 with Nicodemus, kind of a, a counterpoint there. And you go, you have a group of people that are looking to kill him. And you go, why? Somehow, for this group of people, the Messiah had come, and he was now a living hope. And, and that's what we celebrate today. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward and the worship team to come on up. We're going to do communion just a little bit different today. And what we're going to do is we're going to, the elders are going to hand out the communion, the bread and the cup together. I'm going to just ask you to, to stay seated for right now. And they're going to hand out together, but we want to respond to a song. But here's what I'd like you to do when you sing the music. Just remember, look at the words and go, how does this apply to the woman at the well? I, I think this woman at the well would look at this song and go, that's me. That's me. She would respond and worship as a result of that. So guys, would you take the bread and the, and the cup and would we hand that out and just hold that and we'll take it together after we sing. So let's worship him, but think through the eyes of that woman even as you hear the, the, put, see the words on the screen here.